Good morning. Uh, we are going to continue our series on holy history today, uh, looking at the stories of the Bible and how they shape meaning and identity and everything there is to know about us. As the kids are learning in uh, our, our devotional down front, Romans 15 and 4 says that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that we through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures might have hope. These stories are not merely uh, Bible class filler. They are the tools God uses to inform and shape our lives. Our holy history reminds us of the past, defines us in the present, and prepares us for the future. And so far, we've looked at the story of Adam, and we considered the history of sin, uh, that God had a purpose in this world, he has a purpose in this world, and our original contribution to that purpose was mostly to mess it up. And we have been reenacting that part of the story over and over again throughout our lives. A story that is resolved by a second Adam, Jesus Christ, who makes right what we have made wrong. And then last week we talked about our participation in the story in a positive way. We talked about faith. We talked about Abram and Abraham. Uh, talked about how the part we play today is to trust that God is doing his part. God speaks and we listen. God blesses, we trust. We trust that God is doing his part in the story. And that's the biggest contribution we make to the story altogether. So what is it that is God's part of the story? Or to ask the question a different way, uh, we could ask the question, what is God actually doing? Is God actually doing anything about my problems. It's well and good to say, trust, believe. What is it that I'm believing in? Last week I said, God speaks and you listen. What is he doing if I'm putting it entirely in his hands? What is it that he is doing that I'm trusting in him to do? Is he actually doing anything about the problems of the world? Uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to see. Sometimes we see a lot of problems, and we don't see a lot of improvement in the world. Not only that, uh, sometimes, and just bear with me for a minute, because this will be a little cynical, but just stay with me. Uh, sometimes, some have even said, it kind of seems like God or religion is even causing some of the problems. Uh, I like stand-up comedy. Uh, even, even when I dislike the content, I, I like the, the wit and the cleverness that goes into it. Uh, even when I disagree with the conclusions, uh, one guy that I've liked through the years, and you can thank less of me if you want, uh, but I, I enjoy listening to, to John Stewart, even, again, when I think he's wrong about a lot of things. He has this little bit he does that amuses me every time he does it. He says, you know, religion is really good at helping people solve the problems that religion caused. He does the same bit about science, by the way, which you know, tickles me that he does it both ways. Science is really good about helping people cope with the problems that science has caused. Right? And it's just you know, a reminder that a lot of times we say, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And for Stuart, he says, all of us are culpable and we're all participating. But it made me think when I heard it the first time, religion's very good at solving the problem religion causes. What is he trying to say? And a lot of people, I think, feel that way. They really do that what religion is about is telling you that there are these arbitrary rules for right and wrong that you, can, you should follow. There's a God in heaven who's going to hold you accountable to it. 
telling you that you haven't followed those rules, I just said that, making you feel guilty for not following those rules, and then helping you cope with the guilt that it gave you in the first place. That's Stuart's point. It makes you feel bad and then helps you feel good about feeling bad. And some would say that's what religion accomplishes. I obviously don't think that, as you might guess, I'm up here today. Uh, some would say that's what God does. God gives us an impossibly difficult standard of morality. God says, here's what I expect to you, of you. And then condemns us for not living up to it. And then says, well, don't worry, I'll help you with the condemnation of not living up to the rules that I gave you in the first place. So a cynic could look at the whole system, religion in general or God specifically, and say, what is it that's actually the positive contribution to all this? And, and cynic is definitely the right word, because that's such a grim way of looking at the whole story. And to make that point, I actually want to look at another character today and talk about another word. We're going to look at Moses and talk about the history of grace. I love talking about grace at this church because it is written in your DNA, and I don't have to convince you of anything. For decades, Bud did all the convincing, and now I just have to remind you. Remember that stuff Bud said about grace for 40 years? It's true, right? It's literally how you'll be remembered in history. There is, I kid you not, I think I've mentioned it before, a book that was published just a couple of years ago titled uh, The History of Churches of Christ in Oklahoma. And there's one chapter in it where it lists some of the less fabulous things Churches of Christ have done in Oklahoma, right? It's honest. It says, here's some things we did that were just terrible and dumb. We fought over nonsense and we hurt each other and did bad things. But then in the middle of that, it says, but there were some churches that continued to be full of grace, even in those times. And it lists a couple churches, and then like number three is the Central Church of Christ in Ada, Oklahoma, Bud Ross is their preacher, and lists you as like, this is, at our worst, you have this church out there that was full of grace. So I enjoy talking about grace here, because I don't have to sell you on anything, right? We could, we could add it to our, our mottos. We could say, passion-driven, forward-thinking, spirit-led, grace-filled, and it would work just fine, right? When we talk about grace, what we're talking about is God's part in what's going on. And it is the biggest part in many ways. It's the whole thing. And the reason I want to discuss Moses is because, if you can, I don't know if you can see my picture all the way from the back, but Moses, what we remember about Moses are these tablets. Moses is the guy who gave us the arbitrary rules. When I say Moses, you think of law, you think of rules, and maybe you even think of sin. Grace may not be the word that comes to mind. And that's fair, if you read the law of Moses, big surprise, there's a lot of laws in the law of Moses. That's how it got the name. But if you read the story of Moses, what you find out throughout is that the Moses story is a story full of grace. Grace for Moses and grace for the people Moses was trying to lead. We're going to look at a story out of Exodus this morning, but we could have picked almost any section in the Moses story and, and made the same series of point. We just picked this one because I did. Um, Numbers is actually my favorite book to read on this particular point uh, because, as, as I jokingly will tell people, number... The book of Numbers is about the number of times people messed up. It's a story about people doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. 
But we're, we're going to look at this story out of Exodus that sounds like numbers instead. Exodus 17, 1 through 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted here for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Okay, so put it in context. Remember, these are the people who, I don't know, yesterday were toiling away in Egypt in slavery and servitude, were being cruelly oppressed by the Egyptians who were suffering and dying under impossible circumstances, humanity-crushing circumstances. And God, with a mighty hands and ten plagues, comes and rescues them from Earth's most powerful man at great expense, brings them out, saves them more than once. And when they get there, to the other side of wherever they're going, on, this is even before they get to Mount Sinai. At this point in the story, God has not given them any rules to follow. That's Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, they get to the mountain, and God says, let's start with 10. Can we do 10 things right? And of course, the answer is no. But he starts with 10, 10 commandments. But this is before that, right? There aren't any arbitrary rules. The only expectation at this point is maybe, just maybe, you would summon up from your heart some gratitude to the being who saved you from death and slavery. That was the only rule under discussion. I said, nah. <laughs> Couldn't find it. Boy, things are pretty bad out here. Things are pretty miserable out here. Really thirsty. You know the God who turned the Nile to blood and parted the Red Sea probably didn't even think about the fact that we were going to need water. He brought us out here to die. Die of thirst. It's his fault and Moses, it's your fault. And they began to assess blame and to complain. Okay. Not a good look for Israel at this particular moment. What do we learn about our humanness from this particular episode? First thing I'd point out, humans are really good at seeing need and assessing blame. I'll tell you what, you put a human in any situation and they can finish this sentence. The problem is... We are especially good. You put them anywhere in any situation, and the less they actually know about it, the better. The more certain we will be that we know exactly what's wrong and whose blame it is. You put people in a garden utopia, and humans will look around and say, oh, there's a lot of fruit. There's a lot, of good, a lot of good things here. I'm not sure I'm happy with the overabundance of goodness. We'll find something wrong with the trees or the shade or the ease of our lives. You give us everything we want. We'll find something wrong with it, and we'll make it your fault. Somebody else's fault. Humans are especially good at seeing the problem and assessing blame. When they were in Egypt, they were good at it. I have no doubt that when they weren't making bricks for temples and pyramids, they would say, you know whose fault this is? Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the problem. So God saves them from Pharaoh. And they say, you know whose fault this is? God. Moses. That's where the problem is. We are especially good at seeing need 
and assessing blame. And worse, when we start doing that, we get so caught up in it, we lose our sense. We lose any good sense God gave us and become absurd. The next verse, verse 4, actually says, What shall I do with this? This is Moses speaking. What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Okay? Don't miss the strange and twisted irony of that. People who were powerless, like five minutes ago, who were making bricks for Pharaoh in the desert heat and dying and suffering miserably, led out of Egypt by God and his servant Moses. And now, again, I'm exaggerating, but like five minutes later, have formed a lynch mob and are ready to kill Moses. This is not a democratic election where they say, well, we're going to give somebody else a shot. We are ready to kill Moses for leading us out here to die. That's how profoundly grateful we are. And that went from we're mildly unhappy to lethally, fatally violent really fast. And Moses just throws his hands up and doesn't know what to do. Here's the funny thing, and this is what I wanted you to keep in mind. Yes, this is a sermon about us. It's about every one of us. When you're doing this, they saw a problem. They actually were right, by the way. They were thirsty, and they weren't wrong. They assessed blame. I don't really think you can blame Moses, but sure, whatever. You know what they didn't do? They did not create one drop of water. For all their grumbling and all their complaining, not a one of them produced one drop of water. And if they had had their wish, if they had rounded up Moses and burned him at the stake or stoned him with rocks or whatever they decided to do, they would still be just as thirsty as they were five minutes beforehand, only with blood on their hands and no water to wash it off. I think blame and guilt is what we do at exactly these situations when we can't do anything about it. When we feel powerless, when we feel like things are out of our control, we start to find what's wrong and we start to blame someone because blaming someone is something I can do and we all like to do something. Remember, our job, remember this, we preached this last week, our job is to trust, well, we don't like doing that. What we like to do is something else. We want to take destiny and history into our own hands and shape it the way we want. We don't like to trust and we don't like to wait. God says, listen, God says, trust. And so while we're supposed to be waiting and trusting, what we tend to do is say, no, we need to find out whose, whose fault it is and blame them and punish them and that will fix everything. And it's kind of the opposite of trust. But it doesn't change the circumstances at all. Nothing is better. In fact, everything's a little worse because we spend our time and our energy and enthusiasm figuring out what's wrong and who we could pin it on. Okay. Everybody see the grace in the story? Now, this isn't a good look for Israel. This is a bad moment. And yet here's the response from God. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. Ask yourself, this is a very simple, like six-verse story, very straightforward. People are thirsty, people complain, people blame Moses. Moses says, what do I do? God says, here's water. It's, it's a short story. 
but, but ponder a moment how fundamentally different it is from how we would have done it. And you know how you would do it because you have kids. Those of you with kids know exactly what happened. When your kids are ungrateful, what is your response? Do you say, clearly, I should give them more? No. Every one of us at some point has lost it with our kids. They were ungrateful. And we say, I'll show you, and I take away everything they have, and every toy goes into the garage in a bucket, and everything is taken away, and I'll show you gratitude. You get nothing. Nothing is what you get. Right? Could we blame God if that's exactly what he did? Water parted the seas. There was some water. Led you over the Nile. Led you out of slavery, ten plagues, and the overthrow of Pharaoh, but you're thirsty. You know what you get? Nothing. You get to die, I'll find somebody else to save and make them my people. Could you even blame him if that's what he did? What ingratitude deserves is for God to move on, find somebody grateful. Of course, God knows he's not going to find anybody grateful because we're not very grateful. But what God does in the face of our ingratitude is to bless these people anyway. God says to Moses, I know. I know they're blaming you. I know in their heart of hearts they're blaming me, but they can't reach me, so they're blaming you. Can't throw rocks at God, so you throw them at Moses. He says, I know who they're really mad at. And I know what they deserve. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to lead. I want you to go stand out there and I will give them water out of nothing, out of a rock. In a desert land, I will provide them water. And what do we learn from that? Humans are really good at seeing problems. Humans are really good at assessing blame. Only God can bring water to the desert. There is exactly one person who could do anything positive about that situation, and he did. It was pure gift. It was pure grace. It wasn't given because they were especially good people who he really felt sorry for. In fact, I dare say at this particular moment, he feels zero sympathy for them. Because when somebody's ungrateful, it's really hard to sum it up any sympathy, isn't it? I don't think it's because he was moved by sympathy. I don't think it was because he was moved by their profound moral righteousness. They had none. It is purely by the grace of God that he provides water anyway, and he's the only one who can. That, folks, is the story of God's grace that plays out over and over and over again. Listen to Paul mention it in the New Testament. Look at two passages. The first is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul is going to point out that we as a church have a lot to learn from these old uh, wilderness stories and listen to how he tells this is such a fun little section in 1 Corinthians 10 1 through 4 the first part of it for I do not want you to be unaware brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink that's a weird couple of verses uh, a lot of commentators get to this section and kind of throw up their hands what is he talking about? We were all 
baptized into Moses. We, we all ate the, what is he talking? There's no baptism as such in the wilderness. Yeah, they like part, they, the waters part and they pass through it and the water's on either side and the cloud is overhead and they're surrounded by, like you could kind of make it a point of like, yeah, it's kind of like baptism. I, I don't actually think that's even the point Paul's making. I think the point he's making is simpler than that. He is trying to help the Corinthians say and see, you are the people in the wilderness. You know what Moses had in the wilderness? A group of people who didn't do very well. He says, imagine a group of people, and let's say those people all were baptized and on a weekly basis came together and shared a meal. Oh, it's kind of a stretch, it's kind of an allegory. But he says, yeah, imagine a people like that. Imagine a people who were baptized, imagine a people who shared a meal but still managed to disappoint God. You know anybody like that, Paul says? I think his point is simply, can you see yourself in these ancient people? And then now today, even after that, we're asking the same question. And then he says it explicitly. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He said the whole point of the story, Corinth, was for you to see yourself in that church in the wilderness. And to see that while you had been baptized into Jesus as they had been baptized into Moses and all the allegories and all the figures of speech, he said, we're kind of in the same boat. Corinth reminds Paul of ancient Israel getting everything wrong. You came out of Egypt and it says they displeased God. In case you weren't sure, why does God bless them? Is it because they're so good? God says no. The one thing I know about Israel is they did not please God. And we were supposed to learn to be different. But what our point is, we want to take away from it, is the little sentence that I was actually overlooking. Moses and his story is about people who consistently displeased God, but were blessed by God anyway. They somehow make it to the promised land. Over and over again, God blesses them and blesses them and blesses them and blesses them, and they, they get there. And Israel happens, a nation is, happens, and the promises are fulfilled, and none of them deserve it. But God showed them a blessing they did not deserve. Paul, in the sentence I skipped, connects that to us today. He says, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He says, in the same way they were like us, they said, he says, they were blessed by the same person who blesses us today. Christ was in the wilderness. Christ was there because grace was there. A different passage making kind of the same series of points as Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and following. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We stand today as God's people, and we are blessed. We are given the riches of God's glory and his grace. How? It's not because of anything we did. We are the people out there fussing and fighting and quarreling. We are the people in the wilderness who deserve nothing. Our part in the story is to trust that God is doing his, and God's part of the story is grace. The name for God's willingness to bless the disappointing 
and love the unlovable is called grace. Not just his willingness, but his passion for doing exactly that. Carl gave me uh, a good one this morning. I'll steal and make use of. The acronym GRACE is God's riches at Christ's expense. The idea that you were giving something that had very little to do with you. Right? Do you get these three pieces of the story? Our part is the history of sin. That's the part we contributed. Our part now is to listen as God does His part, and His part is grace. His part is looking at us time and time and time and time and time again as we get everything wrong and saying that He loves us anyway and intends to bless us just the same. That fact changes everything. We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the first time Paul says something that's very different from the wilderness. Is this what they did in the wilderness? Did they rejoice in their sufferings? I missed that chapter. They don't rejoice in their suffering. They blame in their suffering. He says, we do it differently because we know something that they should have known but didn't. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that it is another means by which God blesses us. We know that God will never stop blessing us, and He has never stopped blessing us. That even when we are at our worst and when we are suffering and we are waiting for God to do something in the world, He is even at that moment pouring into us His love and His grace. And that changes everything. Grace is how God changes adversity into a blessing. And He does it every day while we wait, and even while we complain. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were angry, while we were bitter, while we were ungrateful, while we were all the things that required Jesus to die for us in the first place, that's when Jesus died. It was not because of our lovableness that he loved us, but rather that he loves. At the very moment when we were at our greatest need, God acts toward us in love, and that is the story of his grace. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Not only does God's grace abound in saving us from sin, It changes life itself. Grace is not only salvation from death, but also the transformation of our lives. It teaches us how to endure hardship differently. It teaches us how to be and find grateful thoughts at moments when we don't feel particularly grateful. It teaches us how to trust, because God has so consistently blessed us when we weren't looking for it. That consistent, loving gracious nature of God makes it possible to trust when we feel no trust at all. In short, the story is this. We are the people blaming everyone but ourselves. God is making us better anyway, and he's the only one who can. What is God's part in the story? He is the one who's there as we fail, loving us and blessing us even while we fail time and time again. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father and our God, we thank you.
for the incredible gift of your grace. Help us to trust that this consistent love you have for us does not depend on your mood and does not even change with our behavior. Help us to see in you the life-changing grace that makes every moment of both our happiness and our suffering better for having known you and what you do in our life. This we pray in Jesus Christ through whom you pour out your grace. Amen.